Welcome to another episode of the Forward Thinking CFO and the latest in our series about financing businesses. As you'll know, growing businesses need cash to support their growth, and it's the CFO's role to ensure that business has enough cash. Today, I'm talking to Jonathan Keeling of Crowdcube, a company that is funding ever-increasing amounts for companies on its platform. So welcome to the Forward Thinking CFO podcast, Jonathan Keeling. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's great to be here. Good, good. Now, you've been part of a startup founder team yourself, I believe. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you got to that point and you know, highlights of your career so far. Sure, yeah. So previous to Crowdcube, I was part of a founding team of a clean technology company called PaveGen. Uh, we were or are a B2B sales business selling in floors that generate electricity when you walk over them. They also produce data. And it was a life-changing experience for me. Um, I joined out of a decision to move away from the corporate world where I joined Centrica originally on their graduate scheme and saw the sort of technology on BDC one day, the founder talking about it and jumped ship, thought it was the future and very quickly realized how difficult it is to scale um, manufacturing technology businesses uh, globally. So learned all the hard lessons of that. The business is still still going today and still pushing its technology to both permanent installations, train stations, retail units, and, and alike anywhere with high traffic and also events and sort of different engagement sort of programs around the world, trying to get people sort of more, more involved and educated on sustainability. But I led the sales team there from intern i guess as part of that team i really was very inexperienced to scaling a sales team really building the commercial side of the business selling into companies like adidas and shell and speaking at multiple events around the world i did a couple of ted talks and really made all the mistakes humanly possible which is really as a lot of entrepreneurs you read about talk of the importance of making mistakes and i certainly certainly did make a lot so that was a great experience and it teed me up to work in my current role at Crowdcube. We culminated in the crowdfunding round, which I led, and then got to know Crowdcube as a business, got to understand the mechanisms behind crowdfunding, the idea of democratization, the idea of, you know, the real trend of the internet and the way that the accessibility of all things really, but finance being one that has been so centralized for so long. And I think that opportunity to, to really give access to as many people as possible to invest in private companies was was what got me interested. And six years later, we're still we're still pushing that mission. The business has been around for nearly 10 years and feel like we're really on the cusp of, of it blowing up globally now. It's been a long, a long journey and there's been lots of sort of different turns in the road. But yeah, thrilled to to chat with you today a little bit more about that and and other things. No, I'll be uh, looking forward to hearing about it. I mean, I think it's interesting that you you left uh, what many people would consider to be a sort of dream job for a, a graduate at Centrica and uh, jumped into some well, jumped into the unknown really. And uh, did you see yourself doing that beforehand, or is this just something that the opportunity came along and it was too good to to turn down? Yeah, I've I've written a, a blog about this a long well about six years ago. Now I wrote a blog about my experience doing that and you know I did that 10 years ago I did that when arguably European tech was still pretty nascent actually there are a lot of 
you know decent businesses going and really making an impression but i would say we're really only at the end of a first big wave of european tech at this point and we're starting to see the recycling of capital going back into technology businesses across europe and i think i was lucky to join that european tech scene at that time i definitely wasn't in tune enough to have made that conscious decision but one thing i did know is that the impact i was having in a graduate role at a big company like centrica i wasn't enjoying i think even you know trying to explain to my manager the impact that you know some financial model that we were working on was going to have an influence on the ultimate sales strategy of the unit that i was working within was manager above manager above manager and i think impact and you know really being involved in things you get so much opportunity to do that in a startup and i just didn't find it fulfilling i was clock watching i think all of these things and i think if you fast forward to now you're seeing many of these sort of more of actually very attractive graduate jobs that many of my peers went into post-university are struggling with talent retention they're struggling to keep that generation my generation of you know decent professionals engaged in those businesses now because the draw of tech and impact and being able to you know really work in a business with a bigger purpose is so attractive so i think i was lucky at the time rather than anything else and i definitely recommend it to many other graduates as as, as a choice corporate versus startup yeah and uh yeah I, I, i'd certainly uh uh, advocate the the benefits of working in a small company as well and uh you know the, the exposure that you get yeah uh definitely agree with that yeah so you joined crowdcube uh now i guess a lot of people will have heard of it but for anybody that's listening that uh, isn't familiar with crowdcube or crowdfunding perhaps you could give us uh kind of a, a, a sort of a, a quick summary of, of what it's about sure crowdcube is a platform that democratizes access for both businesses and investors. So we allow retail investors to invest in private, mainly startup businesses, but growth stage businesses now more and more across Europe as the regulation opens up, but primarily from day one, it was mainly in the UK. And for businesses, it's a different form of fundraising to more traditional means like venture capital or angel funding. And the way it's developed, I guess, is not an either or in comparison to traditional institutional fundraising. It's more complementary to that. So many businesses see crowdfunding as the opportunity to engage a retail audience, to bring customers closer to your business's business by allowing them to buy in and become shareholders. And just broader access, um, broader diversification of your shareholder base. So Again, for investors, it's building a diversified portfolio of high-growth tech companies. For businesses, it's another way of of raising money from a different a different pool of finance, basically. So, is there a particular type of company that's a good fit for for crowdfunding? Or, I mean, you mentioned tech. Is it principally tech, or, or is it uh, much broader than that? Yeah, so I think Crowdcube was made famous by Camden Town and Brewdog and some of the well probably most of the craft beer manufacturers in the UK, we quite literally funded half of them. That rolled on to us funding a lot of food and beverage. And that idea of lovers of a brand or lovers of a product to buy into that business was something that 
Brewdog really led with. We've we've raised over 35 million for Brewdog lifetime. The same happened in the B2C uh, neobank space. So we did the seed round for Revolut. We did the seed round for Monzo. And that led to many other fintech companies aspiring to be like Monzo or Revolut and following in their path of crowdfunding. So very big sectors for us are F&B, fintech, and then more probably unknown is cleantech. And the reason that's a big segment for us is because the retail investment audience are becoming more conscious to the investments that they make and wanting to back, wanting to back products with purpose, sustainability, generally like you know hardcore clean technology, so energy generation projects and broad sort of ESG. So, so we're big investors in that space as well. I think by total volume, it goes fintech, clean tech, F&B. So fintech, clean tech being the two big categories there. Yeah, but an interesting feature there is that you know, people who are interested in the brands can get more involved than just as a consumer, but also invest. So I suppose that gives it a particular edge. Yeah. And some companies have repeatedly raised funds on the platform now, and some of them in the tens of millions. How does that work for the sort of founder shareholders and those who are invested early in terms of dilution of their shareholding? Yeah, I mean, the dilution equation doesn't change when you bring on retail or, you know, you utilize crowdfunding. It's the same as if you were to raise from angels or smaller VCs early on in that journey. Obviously, you know, the more money that comes in and that equation as to how the value of that business grows ultimately defines the dilution. As long as all those numbers are going up, <laughs> then that that's a good thing. I think obviously valuation has had a bit of a a bit of a hard time in the crowdfunding industry over the years, and I think it's fair to say that some 2015 2016 brought around quite a few lofty valuations in this market, and I think we would be the first to admit that, as well as the rest of our industry peers and industry platforms. But that's certainly settled down now as we mainly raise alongside institutional priced lead investment. So what would typically happen is a Alderton Capital, Capital Molten Ventures, you know, you name it, Passion, et cetera, would price around and we would invest alongside that at the same price. To go back to your question, though, that's just sort of validating the price of a deal. You know, investments of this nature carry risks right and i think you're going to be you're going to be diluted as you grow but hopefully the value of that business will also grow there's some great businesses out there that have done multiple rounds with us free trade being one where there are multiple paper millionaires in free trade that invested in their first round their seis round they've got tens of thousands of investors same for chip same for monzo same for revolut and we are custodians i guess of the, those those investors and we represent them via the Crowdcube nominee as a single line on the cap table of those businesses. So we look after hundreds of millions of pounds worth of shareholder interest via our nominee vehicle in some of you know the most most famed European tech companies going. Yeah, so that's uh, an important point, isn't it? That you, you effectively making it easy for um, both for investors and I think for companies raising funds as well. You've kind of systematized the process. Yes, it's um, ultimately we are pooling interest and then executing on that value via a very streamlined transaction. So as much as possible, we simplify the legals. Obviously, there's complexities to to some of these transactions and there's different terms associated. But as much as possible, we try to simplify that. 
the way that we manage those shares or those investors' shareholdings is via a single line, via a nominee. We issue votes and preemption on an ongoing basis. So we manage that for the lifetime of the company. And that's managed by a team in Crowdcube called our portfolio operations team. And they look after, you know, any of those sort of corporate actions, essentially. And that team obviously grows with the amount of businesses that we put into our nominee. But yes, yeah, it's, it's an important part of of scaling the business. You know, it's a, it's a bulky thing to try and build and it only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So what's fundamental to our scale is making the actual transaction process and the management process of those shares as efficient as humanly possible. Mm, sure. When companies come to, to raise funds on the platform, they have to set a target, I think, for how much they, they want to raise. What happens if they fall short of that target and what happens if they go beyond that? Because I think you can go into overfunding, presumably as an option, but what happens in those two situations? Yeah, so you set a target based on your minimum capital requirement. So how much do you need to execute the next phase of your business plan? And we'll agree on that based on you know where you are, your runway, you know your planned activity based on the funds you're raising. If you don't meet that minimum capital requirement, we will cancel the round. So you won't complete complete the, the fundraise. We'll send the money back to investors and everyone walks away and there's no money transacted. Overfunding is very, very common. Typically, you'd overfund 150%. It's a mechanism that we kind of invented. And it's a mechanism that I guess in part sort of confused people and it made the whole sort of definition of crowdfunding sometimes hard to explain but the idea is that you're raising more than your minimum requirement you would have a maximum requirement in the sort of back of your mind at which point that's as far as you're happy to dilute effectively that's um, as much equity as you're willing to give away and then anything in between that is sort of being able to execute on your business plan slightly more efficiently than you would have been able to when it's simply just closing your minimum Hopefully that was a good way of explaining it. I've never explained it like that before. It can be confusing. That made sense to me. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. Numeritas created this podcast as part of our mission to improve the way finance makes decisions. And I hope you find the conversations as useful and interesting as I do. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or just talk privately about a forecasting or modelling challenge. Drop me a message through the contact form on our website at numeritas.co.uk and I'll get back to you. Now, back to the show. So the other side of crowdfunding, besides obviously the uh, the company's raising finance, is, is the, the investor. And presumably this isn't for everyone. Are there any requirements to be an investor on the platform or for crowdfunding in general? And you know, is, is there a particular type of investor this is well suited to? Yeah, you have to understand the risks. We make those as clear as possible. We're regulated by the FCA in the UK, and we are well, soon to be regulated by certain jurisdictions in Europe. And there are lots of requirements that go into that from a financial promotions perspective. So we need to make sure that all the information we put forward is fair, transparent, and not misleading. So we, we fact check everything that a business claims in their plan and also on the pitch. In terms of the type of investor, we have everything from what we would probably call everyday investor fans, people who love products and, you know, let's say invest £50 and get a discount on that product for life 
and become a small shareholder through to more strategic, let's say, angel investors who are writing checks upwards of £100,000. And there's different motivations. Some invest because there are tax breaks. In the UK, we have SEIS and EIS, which are very attractive. And then you have rewards alongside the campaign itself. So you get equity, but then, as I said, you might get a discount or you might get an early release of a product or you might get access to a community of investors that you could talk about the product and help define that roadmap maybe with the business. So long and short is it can be attractive for anyone. I think building a diversified portfolio is important, understanding that all of these investments carry risks and you're likely to to lose money rather than make money. It's probably the simplest way of putting it. But there are a number of these businesses, you know, the top 10% that are really accelerating and creating exponential returns for businesses. And our next challenge is how do we unlock some of them? return slightly earlier, ideally, than waiting for public markets or trade sell. Yeah, and you, you did mention EIS and SEIS, and I think that, that certainly makes it more attractive in, in many ways. The risk is to some extent mitigated, isn't it, by the tax benefits of that. If, if you do lose the money, then there's uh, certain tax benefits that uh, depend on which scheme it is. Yeah, that's right. So I think to a level, I think I think it's uh, it's fair to talk about the risks associated to that as well. I think in some cases we don't see perfect outcomes for loss relief, which is when a business guys kind of goes fully into an administration. There's ways in which a business can continue trading, albeit they're you know technically a liquid, which isn't something that we've been managed to we've managed to protect investors from, and it's something I guess that you know it doesn't just happen in crowdfunding; it happens across the board. And then if you're investing on the EIS or SCIS, there is a, a time period as to which those shares must be held. If a liquidity event happens before that period, then then you'd lose that relief as well. But hopefully there's a you know a more significant return that outweighs that that initial relief. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um no, I mean I think the uh, one thing that people need to go away from this uh, conversation with is an understanding that there is risk involved with this. It's not uh, it's not by any means risk free. But yeah, that that's all part of uh, investing, and particularly in small companies. The uh, I suppose the other aspect for an investor is, generally speaking, if you're investing on the larger stock markets, then you you can sell at any time. And of course, that's not the case with crowdfunding. What are the sort of exit routes for investors? Well, and and uh, I guess for the original founders, in terms of you know them, uh, those two always have to coincide, or other exit routes for investors. Yeah. So. The main exit route is a full company acquisition, trade sale, and or listing. We, I guess, have gone through a very interesting period over the last three to five years where companies have been more incentivized to stay private for longer than to explore a kind of public listing. And there is a good number of companies in our portfolio of businesses that we funded that could go down that route, but have decided not to because it's far more attractive, frankly, to stay private for longer. And there's a big kind of global trend in that. So that kind of has created a bit of a challenge for liquidity. But crowd investors aren't the only people in that boat. (laughs) There are many of the, you know, well, frankly, all of the earlier stage, I would say, you know, European venture funds at early stage that are really trying to access liquidity at this point. And I think the opportunity now is to see how we can offer that. I think 
there's been a lot of discussion around a secondary marketplace. And I think the idea of a marketplace is is great in principle, but the reality of there being, you know, proper buy and sell side liquidity and that to be transferable and to be active is is something that we haven't seen. So we are more focused on transactional secondaries. And what I mean by that is meeting buy and sell demand on alongside a primary or at a significant enough stage of a company's development cycle later on in their development, whereby there is enough demand from new buyers to take out either original crowdfunding shareholders and or employee options, for example, which is something that we're exploring at the moment, and or earlier angel investors or earlier funds. So we are, and we do have a secondary product. It's the long and short, but it's transactional-led rather than marketplace-led. Yeah, okay. So you you may be able to exit sooner, but that depends on somebody else wanting to buy those private shares again. And and it's... (laughs) The timing of that might not always be what you want. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly not something you can chuck up on a notice board. But I think it would be fair to say that there would be enough demand in some of the shares like Revolut, some free trades and Monzo's and, you know, these bigger businesses will certainly there will be a demand. But that needs to be in line with the company's expectations of actually going ahead and executing on something like that. Yeah. Okay. There was another, or it still is, another significant crowdfunding platform, Cedars, which you attempted to acquire or merge with a few months ago, I think it was, but that didn't end up happening. What what uh, what happened there? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a pretty long, drawn out period process. It was, I wasn't directly involved in it, but I've you know I've got the enough of the top line to to share. So. I think it was a circa 12 to 18 months process that we were engaged and jumping through the hoops of of trying to make a deal happen. It was a it was a share swap and Crowdcube were the acquiring party. We were looking to merge and sort of really build a larger European marketplace that was UK owned, you know, UK being the place in which both businesses have been born. The reality was the competition market authority cancelled the deal at phase two, which was actually, you know, we'd led to believe that actually going into that phase, we would get the deal done. But they saw the marketplace as a crowdfunding market, whereas we saw the marketplace as crowdfunding plus venture plus angel plus, you know, total venture capital market. So we didn't align on that is the long and short. And the deal was chucked out by the Competition Markets Authority. And Cedars were then acquired by a US platform, which came under quite a lot of scrutiny by a lot of the UK fintech ecosystem because we'd lost a, you know, a, I say lost a good UK fintech to a European parent company. And it sort of pointed towards the lack of ambition that the CMA had put on what effectively Crowdcube and Cedars could have built together. We're obviously clearly on our own paths now. We recently just closed a Series B from ironically, a US company called Circle, who are a payments platform. And, you know, that was the reality of the impact of that deal not going through. We both needed to raise capital off the back of that decision. We were in a better position to go on and raise and grow on our own terms. And Cedars had to, to go down the uh, the acquisition route. Sure, yeah. And you mentioned, <clears throat> I think, earlier on that um, you know the, this grew up in the UK. Are there Similar platforms starting to emerge in other countries now, or is it still very much a UK-led activity? 
There certainly are, yeah. There certainly are. So the I'm not going to do a great job of this, but the European regulation sort of harmonised, I guess, or given the opportunity for local local jurisdictions to harmonise under a single regulation in sort of November-ish last year. And that's been taking a while, but local territories have, have kind of put their own spin on things and tried to put, to put forward the opportunity for, for European crowdfunding effectively. And there are a number of platforms in, in Europe. And I guess it all depends on the size of each specific market. And that was probably the challenge of UK and Seeders versus Crowdcube is like, how can you build a decent, sustainable business in a market that's big enough for crowdfunding? So I, I kind of see a European marketplace and there being two or three main players rather than there being a local German marketplace or a local French marketplace or, or any other. But there are a number of platforms. Potentially, they'll go in the same way that uh, the syndicate room went in the UK, which became more specialised after Crowdcube and Cedars managed to dominate the more broad crowdfunding market. But yes, there absolutely are. And there's a lot of interest from Europe now. The regulation has come into play. And it's obviously a big drive for us and a big drive for Cedars. And we've hired a lot of people in Europe over the last six months. So trying to stay ahead of that as much as we can. Yeah, that's good. So you're <laughs> growing yourselves very rapidly as well as the people on your platform. Yeah, so we, we just kind of... Well, I say, I hesitate to say this. We've come through the end of the pandemic. I'm not sure that's uh, absolutely the case. There seems to be a, perhaps another round. But um, has that affected crowdfunding and either the demand on uh, either side from from companies raising finance or from investors, or has it been much the same as uh, as, as you were before? I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I think like everyone, people were sort of saying, "Wow." you know, is our business going to survive? And we were in exactly the same boat. I think no one really knew what the pandemic was going to result in for business. I think ultimately what we saw was venture capital and institutional investors pulled back from writing checks. There was a period of uncertainty. We had a couple of quarters where we won some very high profile deals. We did what three words, the tracking sort of mapping business. We also, was it money, money box or was that the year before? There was one other deal that we did right at the height of the pandemic, and it was due to an institution pulling back from writing a check. And they were significant, seven, eight million pound individual raises. And that gave us a lot of momentum, actually, coming off the back of, you know, the height of the pandemic piece. And we've ridden that wave and continued to grow. So we're off the back of our ninth consecutive growth quarter. As I said, we just raised to, to sort of build out in Europe. And I think crowdfunding will continue to exist as a complementary part of the equity funding mix. And we work more alongside institutions than against them. And I think, you know, this is not a plea by any means, but I joined Crowdcube six years ago and I remember going to events and the VC community not really sort of engaging with us at all. They wouldn't really even talk to us. And I think now it's the opposite. They're coming to us and saying, you know, which companies could work? And tell us about how you've done this and why is this valuable? And there's a lot more intrigue in the idea of democratised access. You hear that word a lot. And I think that's here to stay, but we all rely on each other. So I've answered the wrong question there again, but I think that kind of accelerated our connection, I say, the pandemic and the, the, the kind of where we sit within the wider mix. 
So, and um, perhaps you could just give us a, a quick flavour of what the process is. So if, if I'm a CFO wanting to raise some capital, uh, looking at crowdfunding, you know, how do I go about that and how long is that process likely to take? And uh, I guess, you know, what sort of activity would that involve me in? A crowdfund is typically led by a founding team uh, with a CFO in the background, crunching all the good stuff and making sure it all makes sense. And I think that's probably common knowledge to a lot of acti- activities and to your CFO listeners. Um, they're doing the hard work and not getting so much of the recognition. But I think it's it's led from a more of a brand marketing sizzle type aspect. And the CFO piece is more clearly the negotiation and the more off-platform investment side of a crowdfund. So a crowdfund is made up of three parts. It's a lead investment community, typically your own community and, and your own network, and then the Crowdcube member base. Um, and all of those bits need to work together to complete a successful crowdfund. So the CFO is probably highly engaged in the kind of private investor conversations that you would need to have ahead of coming to to Crowdcube because that sets a price for the equity round. And we would then leverage that price, leverage that investor and go out to our member base to secure additional investment at that price. And yeah, I mean, you would you would come to us, we would spend about a month in preparation, really ensuring the communication to your community, to our community was correct and we got the positioning right. We would then spend anywhere between seven days and 30 days live on the platform. That depends on how much buzz, how much take up there is and how quickly the round is filled. And then we take around 30 days to close up the round and that's issuing share certificates. We process all the EIS filings. We wrap up all the investors into our nominee and then we send you the money, net our fee. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's always the way. (laughs) Uh, Back to life. Yeah, okay, well, that's great. Thanks for that. Now, this is the uh, the Forward Thinking CFO podcast and we always like to ask the guests on the show, what do you think is the most important thing for CFOs and senior finance people to be focusing on over the next few months or six, 12 months time frame, and then maybe a slightly longer horizon of, of the sort of three or five years? So uh, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, maybe I can change the question slightly in that I don't think I'll be able to give you any decent insight on the near-term horizon of what CFOs should be thinking at macro level. But one thing that I've really enjoyed working with our finance team over the last six to 12 months since our business has grown, we've had the ability to bring on people in the financial planning analysis data teams that really give us good insight on how our business runs and making that more applicable and understandable to the commercial team and the commercial leaders in our business. And is nothing short of transformative, that information, and being able to act on that information, being able to take that in some of the sort of sales strategy decision-making that we're doing, as well as the delivery sort of decision-making that we're doing, I think that's undercooked. And I think if we were doing that a lot earlier, we'd be a better business. So I think often those, those team members are probably thought of as a Series A, Series B plus higher, but actually, I think if you can get some of those FP&A people in the business early, working alongside the CFO and getting them really crunching stuff and making it applicable and understandable to the commercial teams, I think there's a lot of value there. Good. I like to hear you say analysis is good. <laughs> That's, uh, that is my day job. <laughs> uh, but no, thanks for that. Great. Well, so look, 
I really appreciate you coming on, Jonathan. It's been uh, fascinating to hear about Crowdcube and crowdfunding and you know, how that's of interest to companies trying to raise finance and may also be of interest to some of our listeners from the investment point of view as well. So it's been a great sort of roundup of, of the whole crowdfunding situation. So thanks very much for, for joining me on the, uh, on the podcast and uh, I'm sure our listeners will thoroughly enjoy it. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for having me. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemeritus, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modeling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at emeritus.co.uk.